Thank you for joining us for Brewing Faith, where we bring the hard questions to the table as we discuss the future of our church. Today, we will be discussing Franciscan discernment and the role discernment plays in the lives of young adults seeking meaningful work and the role organizations have in assisting with that process. I will be interviewing Natalie, a former Franciscan volunteer with the Sisters of St. Francis of Philadelphia, who is now working in corporate social responsibility. And I will be interviewing Zach, who is the co-founder of Novus, a marketing agency who assists nonprofits in creating sustainable futures. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, whatever you like to brew, and let's get started. Our Jesuit brothers have a lot to say about discernment. They speak of consolation, times of great abundance, and desolation, desert times in which we find it hard to see hope. They have taught never to make a discernment in times of desolation. The Jesuits have given us the 19th annotation, a retreat in daily life that follows the spiritual exercises through meditation, contemplation, and scripture reading. The Jesuits, with their sprawling universities across the country, have taught many and have taught them well. When I was in graduate school studying pastoral ministry, I had many a friend who I referred to as a baby Jesuit. They had essentially been raised and taught by the order. They were and continue to be incredibly committed to justice and truth. At the heart of who they are, they are discerning people. I was not taught by the Jesuits, ever. I often found myself lost with my Jesuit friends, not because I wasn't a discerning person, but because their strict, patterned, and meticulous methods of discernment didn't fit my style. Scripturally speaking, traditional views of discernment are of Jesus in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights being tested by the devil. For Franciscans, everything starts with experience. Franciscans, therefore, are not in the desert. They are on the mountaintop at the Transfiguration, experiencing Jesus and each other in community. I want to be clear here for a moment. There is no right or wrong way to do discernment. What the Jesuits have offered and brought to our tradition is beautiful and for many fitting. I'm sharing, however, that there are other ways to do it. So if you are someone who hasn't found your discernment niche, I invite you to consider exploring the gift of the Franciscan tradition. In a discernment booklet produced by the Sisters of St. Francis of Philadelphia, it is stated, First and foremost, Franciscan discernment 
sees the whole situation one is discerning as a locus for beauty, not isolating one aspect. It is to let oneself be drawn by the heart, not turning life into a puzzle or a dilemma. It is a discernment based on practice, not abstract solutions. It does not involve figuring things out. Rather, one follows the Spirit's lead. There is a great story of St. Francis that demonstrates the communal aspect of discernment. For Franciscans, listening to other voices is crucial for the discernment process to unfold. It's easy to imagine Francis as an extrovert. After all, he seemed an incredible people person. He seemed to be very focused on community and celebration. He was a troubadour who wrote and performed songs and danced. But the truth is, Francis was much more of an introvert. His time in the caves outside of Assisi in silent contemplation were vital for his ability to be present to others. So naturally, he believed he was being called to lead the life of a hermit. He asked Claire and Sylvester, one of his trusted and most loved companions, to pray for him and asked them specifically to pray about where God was calling him to serve. Was he called to live the life of a hermit? Or was he called to preach to the people? After some time, Sylvester and Claire returned to Francis with the answer they heard in prayer. Francis was to serve God through preaching to the people, not devoting himself to prayer alone. This does not mean that Francis couldn't take the time he needed. In fact, Francis often retreated to the caves to rejuvenate his own soul and take his personal prayer time with God. This story demonstrates the role community plays in discernment. We should all have what I refer to as our inner discernment circle. Those people who know us intimately, who can be honest with us even when we don't want to listen to it, and who love and support us in ways we know we can trust. For Francis, this was Sylvester and Claire. Who is it for you? So I'm here today with Natalie, who is a former Franciscan volunteer with the Sisters of St. Francis and is currently working as a shareholder advocacy manager. I also have Zach with me, who is the co-founder of Novus Agency, which is a nonprofit marketing and branding company. So welcome to both of you. It's Thank great you so much. Great to have you here. So we're talking about discernment today and specifically discernment in the Franciscan tradition. And Natalie, I wanted to start with you. Could you start by just saying a little bit about yourself and specifically how did you end up volunteering with Franciscan Volunteers? Yeah, of course. Um, I can't say it's like a whirlwind of a story, but <laughs> I was raised Catholic, um, but was always raised with this idea of 
treating other people with kindness um, and doing mm -hmm. good for others, um, but also taking care of yourself. But I really didn't get into my faith aspect really until I went to college. Um, and there I kind of dove into everything, whether it was um, university ministries to the poetry club to I studied accounting. So it was really this whole mod podge of, of experiences. And so ultimately all of that um, led me to doing a year of volunteer service. I went into school thinking I was going to get an MBA um, and a certified public accountancy track and go into public accounting. And it was just going to, that was the path It was all laid out. It was going to be great. Um, I realized quickly at school that I wanted more than that. Um, I realized that I didn't necessarily want to go into public accounting and everything kept leading me back to the social side of business. I was, I still liked accounting, um, enjoyed it, enjoyed the business aspect of everything, but everything really led me to the social aspect. So I got interested in working at nonprofits. I interned for nonprofits doing accounting work and really wanted to see that other side of, of business. Um, so that kind of led me to after what I was going to do later. Like, I wish I could have had like the ease of, oh, I'll just work for a firm, do my internship, get a position. And I can't say it's easy because I know many people and it's, it's not right. an easy thing, but right. kind of that clear path. But instead, I was trying to make, make my own path um, and kind of learn more to see what else I could do on that in that social field of, of the business world. Um, so was it difficult to find something to blend your love of social justice and this degree in business that you were sort of like, whoa, what do I do with this now? <laughs> so I think I was in a good place or at a good place for that to happen. I went to St. Bonaventure University, which is a Franciscan university. And so to, I had the resources available. It was an accredited business school. There was a great ministries center um, and great resources in both the business department the ministries, the Franciscan Center, I really had like the opportunity to find and do what I wanted to look for. Um, so I think it wasn't necessarily difficult. Um, I think it was challenging in times of articulating what I wanted to do and really trying to figure that out for myself. Um, but I did have the resources available to me to do that, which was, which was great. So you ended up working with the Sisters of St. Francis. Can you talk a little bit about your work there? Yeah, I worked with Sister Nora Nash in the Office of Corporate Social Responsibility, and I really did a whole lot of everything. Um, I didn't know what to expect going into it. I had talked to her on the phone and met her in person and was kind of starstruck or in awe um, <laughs> of the work that she had done. She wor works with CEOs and corporations on on a daily basis on all of these different issues with this human rights focus and um, really opening the eyes of businesses to what else they should be doing um, in relation to their business and their work. And I realized like that's what I wanted to do um, and just seeing that the work that she was accomplishing and it wasn't just forcing businesses like, hey, look at this, you should do this because of X, Y, and Z. It was building the relationship with the company and I think that was the, the key aspect that I think I had like been looking for, but wasn't sure what that was. That relationship piece? That relationship piece, yeah. Mm. 
So can you tell me a little about corporate social responsibility? Some of our listeners might be listening and, and have no real concept of what corporate social responsibility is. Yeah, so broadly speaking, it can mean a lot of things. Um, and companies do take to their free will at what corporate social responsibility is. But in a sense, it's, it's what the company does more than just their business piece and their business purpose. It's, it's extends past the getting a profit for the shareholders. It's paying attention to the environment, the communities that they affect their, all of their different stakeholders. And so it's building all of those pieces together. There's that business side of it. So internally businesses will work on all of those issues. And I work on the investor side. So externally working with corporations through a human rights lens to focus on these issues such as can be anywhere from human rights issues in labor and their supply chains to the climate crisis to nutrition and access to healthcare. really all of these this broad um, all of these different issues so you said that when you worked with sister nora you were sort of starstruck <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to work with her and why you would use that term starstruck? Um, she really is a pioneer of, of this work and has so much, I want to say, like enthusiasm behind it, but also respect towards it. She has been able to build these relationships with companies for these issues and I was sitting next to, I sat literally next to her desk. It was not more than five <laughs> feet away from her on a daily basis. And she would have CEOs and corporate executives call her every once in a while. And she'd just pick them up and have a normal conversation like they're normal people. And I think, mm. I think it surprised me at first to realize that, oh, these corporate executives, they are normal people. They aren't just these like large figureheads of companies that sometimes we see them as. Um, but there is that personable side to corporations and they aren't just these rigid structures and she's able to ask the right questions the pointed questions she's able to build that relationship and really get to know them as people not just a corporation and I think that's just an incredible thing and that's why I was I still am um starstruck and how she's able to just so easily develop these relationships with these people yeah that's awesome so, so in that year of service and working with Sister Nora, what about that year helped you make the decision that this was the career path you wanted to start down? I think it was great and it is great to have Nora as a mentor through it because she really threw me into everything. Um, she wanted me to experience everything that I could experience. So I would sit on, I would listen to dialogues and calls on a daily basis on webinars I'd be researching different topics I'd be taking notes she would she really just had me do everything to really just get a feel of what it all was and what it all meant and really encouraged me to ask these questions of um, why or what are we doing this for and I think just learning that and developing that um, helped me realize that this is something that I would like to do is how do I learn to develop these relationships with companies and these individuals that she had been doing. So what seems so easy to me, like she developed them so easily, but like, again, I'm, I was new to this and how do you do it? And so I think just learning the structure of everything behind it was, 
I understood the business pieces of everything because that's what I studied, but it was learning how to integrate the two of this human rights social piece lens into just this rigid business structure that I always assumed it would be. So I think just learning that it is possible um, really opened my eyes to see what I could do with it. That's great. I think one of the key things you said is mentorship, that Mm -hmm. when we can find these relationships that, that actually help us along, I don't want to downplay higher education. I think it's very important in our society. At the same time, I think we've lost something with like assistantships, internships, sort of that apprenticeship that was so, you know, evident and popular in older societies. We've sort of lost that taking somebody under our wing and showing them the way. So it sounds like that's what you're talking about with Sister Nora, that she was truly a mentor in the full ways of that word. Yes, definitely. I think I've been lucky to have an opportunity like that to work with Nora and also just past opportunities that I've had outside of internships. I was a companion at a mountain retreat and that fits like it is that idea of being like under the wing of someone and learning hands-on rather than just this, this broader idea of an internship. It is that, that idea of mentor and companion um, and community really of, of building that relationship. Yeah. So you started by sharing, well, I forget if you shared where you're working. So where are you working these days? I'm a shareholder advocacy manager for seventh generation interfaith coalition for responsible investment. We're located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And so you're an East Coast girl, and you up and moved to Wisconsin. You're 23? 24 now, yeah. 24. So you're 24, up and moved to Wisconsin. That must have been quite the risk for you. And so, like, how was moving to a new city for you? What made you say yes? What was the risk versus the reward for you? Yeah, I, like you said, I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up in New Jersey, lived there my whole life in a small town. It wasn't near any city. Went to school in a rural part of Western New York um, and then spent the year down with you outside of Philadelphia. And so I've never lived in a city before, let alone really outside of the tri-state area. Um, Mm -hmm. It is a change. Like I've never lived in a city and I just... I literally like looking at it. I was like, I'm young. I, if I want to move back to New Jersey, I always can, but now's the time to experience something new. Mm. Um, I remember meeting the people who I currently work for and with, and they told me we're in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Would you mind relocating? And I was like, Oh no, not a problem. Like I would be willing to go anywhere. And as soon as that conversation finished, I, beelined back to my laptop, opened it, and was like, where is Milwaukee, Wisconsin? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think like my geography would be better than it was, but just spending so much time on the East Coast, I'm like, it's it's in the Midwest somewhere, but where is the Midwest? (laughs) (laughs) And how long does it extend for? And where does it start? (laughs) Wisconsin's a much larger state than I I think I ever thought it was. Even the year of volunteer service um, and Sister Nora kind of taught me to experience everything you can. Um, And I think, so that was definitely a big factor in upping and moving halfway across the country to a place I've never been before um, by myself where I knew nobody. (laughs) 
so you're almost there a year now, right? Yes. How, how do you feel on the other end of the year? I love it here. Um, I think it's a great city. I can easily say that I do miss like the mountains a lot sometimes and wish I could explore them more frequently, but it's a great little city right on the lake. So I do enjoy that. My job is great. I've been learning under great people as well. And I've developed some great relationships and communities here too. So I'm happy that, that I made the move. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and how you got to where you are today. I'm going to shift over to Zach now. Can um, I ask one yeah. question? Real Absolutely. Fast? Okay. Yeah. So, so Natalie, as you know, this idea of like the triple bottom line has become popular, at least social media popular, at least PR popular as uh, Fortune 500s start caring or at least saying that they care has there been something that's been particularly surprising on like a positive note that you went into this and were surprised to find out that there was more momentum around some of these ideas than you had initially thought? And then maybe, maybe an experience that was a little bit jarring or upsetting. I thought this would be this particular concept or this idea would be more proliferated and accepted than it than it is actually being proliferated and or accepted. Yeah. So I think broadly speaking um, in the whole kind of business field is recently, it's less than a year ago now, the business roundtable, which consists of a lot of the largest CEOs, released a new statement, um, a new commitment that it used to be that the, the purpose of a corporation was to get profits for shareholders. And that, that, that was the purpose of a corporation. But recently they came out with a new statement that expanded that. So it's no longer shareholders that are their main interest, but it's all stakeholders. And that includes employees, suppliers, and communities as well. So I think the large CEOs coming out and saying that does show something. It shows movement in the right trend of that incorporation of these, of all stakeholders into business and not just yes. shareholders. And so I think. Broadly speaking, that was a great thing to hear. I think it can also be a little concerning because you're not really sure why they're saying it or if they're saying it for just to say it or if movement will actually happen. I've also learned that you kind of have to um, appreciate and applaud the little wins mm. because mm -hmm. companies are so large and you're not going to get quick movement on an issue immediately. Yeah. And as much as I'd like to see that, it, it doesn't happen. So... For me, like right now, the little wins are if you're reaching out to a company and you're like, I work in a lot of food and water issues. So um, mm. I focus a lot on deforestation and deforestation policies, as well as nutrition policies. And so um, we've reached out to a company before saying, hey, we've, looked, we've worked on nutrition for you and your children's menus for X period of time. And we'd really like to see these improvements. And so getting on a call with them and having them say, yes, this is what we've done. These are the improvements that you are looking for. And we're also working to continue that. And we have a team put together. Um, I think that it's a, a great conversation. And then you meet with yeah. other companies that say we're working for a deforestation policy and they don't have one in place. They don't see why they need one. They have a very particular thing that they do and they don't want to add extra work or they don't have the time or capacity 
And I think that's, those are the challenges is working with the company to find that capacity within them to do those changes. What a cool yeah. job. That's awesome. <laughs> it really it's, is. It is a Thank cool you. job. Thank you for your work. That's, it's important. It's so important. Yeah. So Zach, you, your work is important too. So to shift to you for a little bit. So I invited you here today because I think you have a unique perspective to add to this conversation of discernment because you're coming from a marketing perspective. And can you share first a little bit about yourself and what you do? Absolutely. So I was born and raised, fun fact, I was born and raised in Kailua, Hawaii on the island of Oahu. So that's cool. Grew up there, which was awesome and certainly a huge privilege. And then moved to the East Coast for uh, actually halfway through high school and then went to George Mason University for college in Northern Virginia, Fairfax, Virginia. And uh, in, in terms of discernment, the, I actually, I grew up in an ecumenical Christian community where the, where talking about discernment was, was very popular. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, I, I, we talked a lot about consolations and desolations and being intentional with decision-making. And so I sort of grew up, my, you know, my parents were big subscribers to choice theory. And so grew up thinking pretty critically and intentionally about what I was doing and, and why I was doing it. That's a cool upbringing. Um, yeah, yeah, it's certainly unique. Um, yeah. And I'm very, very thankful for, for a lot of that. But, you know, I, growing up, I always wanted to do something, make an impact, change the world, yada, yada. Wasn't really sure how to do any of that. But so when I was in college, I started off as a marketing major in Mason School of Business and was fortunate enough to, I, well, so I was putting my, myself through school and was also working full-time at a marketing agency. And I learned so much on the job and I was fortunate enough to have just great mentors on the Mm. job so much so that I didn't, I I, I wasn't learning too much in school, uh, at least in, in, uh, the business school. So I worked with some faculty members at Mason and decided to craft my own major around marketing for uh, social enterprises and nonprofit organizations. So kind of, crafted my own little uh my own little pathway here because i love marketing and i love the idea of uh branding and the the power that i believe like brands have to to do good in the world Mm -hmm. um while i was in school i was working at this agency which is called direct development and uh ended up after school signing on with them full time actually worked full time for my my senior year there and have helped kind of grow our, our, you know, then small team now a little bit less small still, you know, we have about 25 people on our team now started with about five people when I came on board and, you know, with some awesome people, uh, over at the company, we, uh, founded Novus not too long ago. So Novus actually was just founded in February of this year, February of 2020. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's a, it's, a big privilege and it's been a very, uh, it's been a long time coming, but, uh, that's a little bit about my, my story. And so interesting that you too pick up on that mentorship that it seems anybody who's on like the career path that they find is meaningful and fits them. It somehow started with some mentorship, somebody saying, Hey, let me show you the way. You learn. So, I mean, again, and that's one of of the colleges I think are doing a better job of incorporating 
internships and whatnot into kind of curriculum. But I think, you know, there's, there's also a difference between internship and mentorship and you can have a great internship and have a crappy mentor and yeah. uh, that's not helpful. Um, but I do yeah. think like mentorship is the single most important, you know, value to growing your career. What, you know, regardless of, of what that career is or, or what that path is, find yourself good mentors. And even if those mentors have to be like books or mm. videos, right? Like or, or influencers that you might not be able to just sit down with for, for a coffee, find, make, you know, create your, your own pool of mentors that you can tap into because I really do think that that is the single most important thing uh, in determining your trajectory as a professional. Yeah, that's great. So it's my experience too often, specifically speaking of job interviews here, um, that mm-hmm. discernment is viewed as this one-way street. You know, the organization is discerning if the applicant would be a good fit. However, you have some different ideas of, that I think are interesting when it comes to how it's a two-way street. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in a leadership position at uh, my company for the past four years. I've had the opportunity to interview lots of people for, for a variety of positions over the years. And um, I've also read a fair amount just about growing businesses and, and hiring in general. And, you know, we've all, or many of us have probably been in interviews where you can tell that the, you know, the person interviewing Googled like seven questions to ask, you know, <laughs> your before an interview or whatnot, right? Or on the, on the opposite end, it's like, before you go into an interview, you're Googling like, oh my gosh, what questions are they going to ask me? And they're very like canned, like predictable questions, right? Right. Um, I can't tell you how many times. Here's a pro tip. Just realize that if you are walking into a job interview, the chance, like chances are that person interviewing you has interviewed other people before. And so if you give like a canned response, it's not a great way to, to <laughs> leave a first impression. Um, right. But, but anyways, so in terms of how I think discernment is involved in the context of a job interview, especially from the, the company side of things, I, you know, time is your most valuable resource. And especially if you're, if you're, a, if you're a, a small agency like we are, we're looking for right fit, right? We, we don't, we're not a Fortune 500 company where you get you know, zillions of applicants and you pick the top people from the top schools and if they don't work out, then you just, you know, go to the next layer down and you're, and you know, then you're set. What we really care about is uh, the trajectory that someone is, somebody is headed on. So people will ask you questions like, where do you see yourself in two years or five years or 10 years? Right. And like, I don't know. I don't know that any of us can honestly answer those questions. Like I, I think those are dumb questions. What we like to ask and what I think is more important is like, where are you directionally headed? What is it that you are excited about? What are you passionate about? Like, what do you want to learn? And if those three things, if the intersection of those three things, if we believe that like we as a company can be that stepping stone, right? Um, Or be a place that can facilitate and grow that passion, um, that can facilitate that learning, and, you know, and we believe that there's some value you have to, to better us as an entity, then we'll right. welcome you in the door. But I think like that's, that's from, again, from a discernment standpoint, something that I don't know that a lot of smaller companies do really, really well. 
It's mm. tempting to just put something on Indeed or LinkedIn and you know make a decision on an applicant in the first couple of weeks. But I actually think that it's a lot more important to think, you know, or on the other end of the spectrum, it's scary to think, okay, wow, if I hire this young person, are they going to come? And am I going to train them? And they're going to leave in a year, right? And that's right. terrifying. Like that's really scary, especially as a as a young business with lots of young people, you invest so much time into people. Talk about mentorship, right? Right. You invest mm-hmm. so much time into people and then they take it and go to the agency down the street or they go to Facebook or Google or what, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. You can't compete with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I think is, is sort of like the, the role of the organization from a discernment standpoint in the interview process is to stop, to not think about like, what am I going to get from this individual and, or what is, what is this individual going to get from us as the organization? But instead to think like, okay, is there an opportunity for this individual to thrive in the context that we have and based off of the context that we have and the skill sets of the individual, are there like, is there synergy there? Um, because you can take really, really, and we've done this. We've hired really, really smart people. And they've come in the door and they've failed at our company because our company operates very, we give you the keys to the car like on you know month three. And we say, don't get it into a wreck, but we don't really care where you drive. <sighs> that, works, that works well for some people, but not so well for others. Right. So the point being how you spend your time professionally, both as an organization and as an individual is invaluable. It's, incredibly important to think very critically to discern well where you want to be professionally. And I think both the the companies and and the applicants have headway to make in that sort of process. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. And I mean, there's so much research that talks about like employee engagement and how to create that. And a lot of things circle around like those relationships and how valued the person feels when they walk through the door. And the more value I feel, the more I'm committed, the more I'm engaged and the better like output I'm going to have in the production that I can do. So I think that's really interesting because I think people don't think of it that way. People yeah. think of it as the, like you said, the old school way of I'm going to pick the top applicants on paper and see where it goes. Um, well, and on, on the applicant side of things too, it's like, I think a lot of the times people you would be surprised or maybe you wouldn't be surprised by how many people, how many times you're in an interview with somebody and you ask them like a really good question. And you, then you realize, Oh wow. Like this person, they just showed up. They didn't think about, they didn't do their homework on who we are as an organization. Like they didn't do, it's almost like they expected to walk in and that there was going to be like a quiz, right? Like almost like you wouldn't in school where, I was going to ask you a question and you were going to give me, I was going to, it was like a multiple choice question. You were going to pick A, B, C, or D. And you know, that's, that's just the wrong way to show up to something like this. And so right. I think that it's really not that hard to, to be impressive in the context of an interview. If you do some homework, like show critical thought, like be ridiculously honest with people, with the employer about who you are and what you want. If you don't see yourself at this company for the next five years, then say, hey, I don't see myself here for five years, but I want to spend the next two years learning how to do this thing really, really well. And I believe that I can give you this thing. And I think together, that intersection point is valuable uh, for, for both you and for me. And, and therefore, you should hire me. 
the day that you walk into an interview and say something like that, like you'll, you'll at the very least be remembered as a candidate. And I think that that's important because there are a lot of candidates that you just don't end up remembering because they didn't impress you. So what would you say then? Um, this is just a question coming to me now, but um, you know, I've had the experience a lot of times. Um, and I do think this is a generational point that people don't necessarily want that honest, that level of honesty and transparency that, you know, I've been told in multiple, you know, working situations by multiple supervisors that I'm just too honest. Hmm. You know, what would you say to that? That's really interesting. I mean, I'm sure a lot of this just has to do with personality and it comes down to like the organization itself and, and whatnot. But yeah, in, in my honest <laughs> uh, opinion, like you can't be anyone but yourself. And I know that sounds super cheesy and it is really cheesy, but the life is like really too short to just not be brutally honest. And again, you need to be kind. And you know, there, there is, there is a, such a thing as like oversharing, but mm -hmm. I don't think that it's ever wrong to be honest about like, Hey, this is where I'm at. Here's what I'm thinking. And here's why I'm thinking it. Right. You don't need You don't need to like show your wounds to the world all the time. But like, I do think oftentimes people get so caught up in like what the right answer is. And so like they psych themselves out, right? Like you're like, okay, you know, Sarah asking this question, what is it that she's actually asking? Is she asking me this? Is she asking me this? Like what, what is like, what are the underlying connotations of, of the question that she's asked? And we psych ourselves out. Right. Right. Um, and I think, being ridiculously honest and saying things like, Hey, uh, sorry, can you explain that to me? Like, here's what I'm hearing. Is that what you're saying? Like, is this what you mean? I feel like if I was a betting man, right, I would bet on honest people a hundred times more than I bet on somebody who said the right thing all the time, but you could tell wasn't really genuine. Who wants canned responses? You know, right. it's, it's the people that are, are honest, I think, especially for millennials, like lots of us, like all of us probably, right, struggle with insecurity. And we, we have this tendency, especially like in, in formats of like a podcast interview or like when we're writing a blog post, like to adopt a different persona, right? Okay, I want to adopt this like polished, I say all the right things, I'm an accomplished person. And not to say that that's not who you are, but like you're putting on, you're oftentimes putting on some sort of front. And I, I find that as like the people that I respect most, uh, the like the Steve Jobs of the world, the Bob Igers of the world, the Tim Ferrises of the world, I love them. And I think why I love them is because they are just unapologetically themselves. And again, that's not everyone's cup of tea. But again, I think that more of us need to do that than to, uh, you have a better chance of being successful by being who you are than you have being successful by trying to emulate somebody else. That's, that's sort of how I feel. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that perspective. And I'm just gonna like get on my own soapbox here for a minute because I do want to point out, and you, you stepped on it a little bit there, um, that you're a millennial. And I guess just to point out, since our listeners cannot see us, um, all three of us are in the millennial generation, ranging from the lower end to the upper end. And just to paint that picture a little bit for our listeners, you know, I think it's important to point out what millennials are contributing to society and organizations right now, because some of these ideas we're talking about, I think are very much embedded in millennial thought, but are not have not necessarily made it into the entire workforce yet. 
or even the greater workforce. You know, I mean, this when we talk about this brutally honest, be yourself unapologetically, if you walk into a job interview with someone who's a baby boomer, who's a very traditional baby boomer, you're not necessarily going to have that be welcomed. Um, So yeah, I will get off my soapbox, but I do think that millennials have something very solid to say about organizational change and structure and where we should be heading as a society that could benefit everyone if they could really listen to that. So thank you for your thoughts. Yeah. And I I would just add to like, there's know what you know and know what you don't know. There, there is also a balance between like being, and I, I definitely have friends who I think are incredibly talented people, but that think that they know everything. And the reality is like, you don't, none of us do. And, (laughs) and most of us, especially like if you are a millennial, like, you know, some things you've learned some things, but you have a lot of learning to do. And so I think it's incredibly, incredibly important for all of us to own, like own what you know and say, no, like, look, I've been to battle. I, you know, I've, I've been to the war. Here's what I've learned. But then again, be brutally honest about all the things that you don't know. And the sooner yeah. that you can just say, these are my superpowers, these are my weaknesses, mm-hmm. that saves everyone so much time. Everyone, like that, that will save you from a bad job. Like that'll save you from, maybe you would have gotten the job, but it would have been a horrible job. So find out and, and be totally honest, not cocky, but be just transparent about where you're strong and, and where you're weak. And like, what I love about like what you were sharing earlier, Natalie, is also just about like being radically open. You, if you're a young person in particular, now's the time to think, you know, boldly and to, to take big jumps. And, you know, we're living at, we're living through a pandemic right now, which is unfortunate uh, for lots of reasons. But beyond that, we're living in like one of the greatest moments in history where we have access to so much content, so much opportunity. And at the same time, there are more, maybe more problems than ever before to solve, right? More mm-hmm. social inequality than ever before, right? More economic inequality than ever before. And so we're like, the world is going to need you. The world is going to need your gifts and your talents. And you've got a lot to learn. We all have a lot to learn. And it's important to kind of circle back to what we were talking about at the very beginning to find those mentors, find those people, those influences in your, in your life and tap into those for as sources of inspiration and as sources of guidance. But I think, you know, just be really, really clear about whether this is to employers, whether this is to teammates, whether this is even in your personal relationships about the things that you know, and really, really, really honest about the things that you don't. And if that's, if that's where you start every relationship, every engagement, right? You've, you've been so honest that like, you're winning no matter what, because, because you're starting at the offset with being totally candid and owning who you are. Yeah. Yeah. Like what you're saying is great. And um, like, I talk a lot on a daily basis to companies about transparency and how we look for companies toward transparency. And it's almost like, why don't we look to ourselves for that same type of transparency, both in relationships with other people, with our employers and the people we work with, but also to ourselves. Um, and being transparent and honest to myself. Um, I think I learned so much about that in my year of volunteer service, and I was so lucky to, and I'm so lucky to have these opportunities to, to learn through these experiences, but it is this idea of, of transparency and learning about yourself, because it's hard 
to just go into a job interview or a new experience and sure you're being transparent and saying, oh, I'm nervous about this or I'm excited and this is what I want and this is what I'm looking for. But it's hard to do that if, if you haven't had that same conversation with yourself of why am I looking to do what I want to do? What outcome do I want this to have? What values is this stemming from? What, what does this mean to me and why? And learning that first makes that transparency easier so that I am able to go into a conversation with my boss or a friend and say, hey, this just came up. This is how I feel about it. Can you explain this? And how can we work from here? And so I think it's, it's learning how to ask the right questions. And I know I struggle on a daily basis of how do I word this so it sounds right? Um, am I saying the right things here? Am I doing the right thing? And I think, like, I know I have to take a step back every once in a while. And it's not, am I doing the right thing? It's, is what I'm saying coming across as clear as it should be? And how do I make that more pointed and more clear, really, um, and open? So I think it is that, that openness with yourself and with others. Yeah, that's, it's such a good point. Snaps to that. <laughs> I think too, because I did get on my millennial soapbox, I also want to make the point that part of this podcast, we're trying to gear it towards those who are, have just graduated you know, college and what's next and where are they going? And again, as Zach said, in the middle of a pandemic, that can be a really hard you know, decision and discernment. But also to mention that those people are not millennials, they're Generation Z. Mm-hmm. And they're coming with a whole new perspective that in some ways overlaps millennial thought, but also is their own unique perspective on life. Most millennials, um, at least millennials in this country, tend to have come from a more privileged background as far as what society looked like. Uh, we have known times of peace. We have not always been at war our entire lives. And for Gen Z, that's not true. They, they are the kids who were born post 9-11 and um, have never experienced time without security uh, or with security. Uh, you know, they were kids when the housing market crashed and parents were losing homes and they had to move and never experienced the same security that many millennials did. And so this is just a question I'm throwing out and you might, neither of you might have an answer to this, but if you know anything about like Gen Z and where they're at, is there any advice you can give to those coming out of college as they start to engage in these discernment questions of career, their path in life and career and where they're going. Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard to speak for somebody else. So like, I can't say like one thing or another, but there was one thing that hit me when I was at school and it was work for what you believe in. Um, And I think that Gen Z has that mentality overall right now too. And whether it's climate solutions or equality and justice um, across everything and making sure they're voting and all of the different issues at hand. And I think it, it is working for that justice and what you believe in. And I think it's just learning because I'm content, like I'm on the younger end of the millennial spectrum. Um, But it's learning how to ask questions about yourself and about what you want to do and learning to find those mentorships and relationships and building that. So I think it's really, I mean, it's a mix of everything and there's no, no easy answer there, but it's, it's finding the resources and the opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. And I would just add to that and say that, you know, there's an awesome book called Deep Work by Cal Newport. 
who is a professor at Georgetown and highly recommend his book. And I think the how this pertains to Gen Z is, you know, I think they're a, a big obstacle, if not the biggest obstacle right now. And this is bigger than Gen Z, but it's just the amount of distraction that exists, you know, from social to texting to video content, right, to, to you know, you name it. There's just a lot of noise. And some of that content is really, really, really good. And like some of these tools and networks are amazing and really good vehicles through which to share about who you are, to connect with really in- interesting and influential people. But there's also a lot of noise out there. And so what I love about what Cal, Cal Newport talks about deep work and talking uh, specifically about how the individuals that can be intentional, right, that can think deeply, that can block out noise and distraction and focus on a problem, though that is such a, an advantage that puts you at such an advantage over, over other people if you figure out how to do that. So going back to like a key component of discernment being intentionality, right, and being really, really wise with how you choose to spend your time. I think for the Gen Z, there are more distractions than ever before in front of you and you were born into all of this. Like I still remember a time, you know, before there were cell phones and I'm on the younger end of the millennial spectrum. Gen Z does not remember a time before there were cell phones, right? Right. So if you can take your passion and your, your orientation towards social justice and then couple that with like, figuring out how to work deeply and intentionally to solve big problems, you're going to be the most powerful generation that, that we've seen because you have access to tools that no other generation has had access to. You've got an awareness that is beautiful and unique and fresh. And so if you can figure out how to couple that with like focused attention, you're going to be unstoppable. That's great. Thank you for sharing. So how about as a final question, Zach, do you have any personal story of discernment you'd like to share that would be helpful for our listeners to hear? Yeah, I'll, I'll make this uh, quick. I'm not a quick person, but I'm going to try really hard to make this quick. <laughs> um, so when I was uh, 15, 16 years old, I was fortunate enough to go to this school. My, my family uh, was living in Hawaii, but both my parents were actually teachers. So didn't have a lot of money and we were living with my grandmother um, in, in her home there. And I knew that if I wanted to go to a private high school, I would need to get a scholarship and get that paid for. So I worked really hard in middle school, was fortunate enough to get a really good scholarship to an awesome, awesome school called Iolani in Hawaii and went to school there and for a, a year and a half. And it just wasn't for me, uh, mm. just it was great. There were so there were so many amazing things about the school, but wasn't the right place for what I wanted and really sort of like my yeah my my learning styles and whatnot. And so I was doing well academically, but just did, never felt like I quite fit in culturally. And so I ended up convincing my parents to let me uh, transfer, go live with a friend on the East Coast in Northern Virginia, and finish out high school at a classical school in Northern Virginia called Trinity. And it was the best decision that I've ever made in my entire life, but also a very, very hard one. And so that process of my parents letting me go as a 16 year old and essentially like move out and, and become an adult, 
and that risk of like going from this small town to you know the DC suburbs was was really 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 big but I knew that it was the right thing for me and it didn't make a lot of sense on paper but it it felt like the right thing to do in my gut to this day and it changed the whole trajectory of my life for for the better so I guess to the teaching moment might be trust your gut um, make notes of like why you're excited about this make your classic pros and cons list and if it sticks with you if like that feeling in your stomach or your heart or wherever wherever you have that feeling stays <laughs> with you over a period of time that's genu- like generally a good sign that you're at least headed in the right direction so you won't have all the answers figured out and that's again one of the beautiful things about discernment it's like there's no guarantees when you're making a decision you, like you're discerning between two good decisions right if I had stayed in Hawaii, it would have been fine. If I left, presumably it would also have been fine. So there were good decisions. I wasn't deciding to drop out of high school or, you know, finish high school. But trust your gut, right? And, and what my gut was saying is like, hey, I need to make this big radical change. I don't know why. It's really, really, really scary. But at the same time, I feel at peace about this decision. And so I made that decision. And, you know, to this day, my mom will say, if you ask her, she says, it's the hardest decision I've ever had to make. Still don't know why it had to be this way, but I'm confident that it was the right decision for Zach. So wow. there you go. That's so great. That's such great confirmation from your mom. Yeah. That must have meant yeah. a lot, too, to hear her say that later. Took her a few years, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> but good for her. I mean, I can't imagine, yeah, allowing that decision. but shows some discernment on her part too. Absolutely. That's great. Um, Well, I want to thank you both for being here today and having this conversation. Um, It was really great to to have both of you and to hear your stories and um, see how discernment has worked and functioned in your lives. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great to meet you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. Great to meet you, Natalie. Thank you for joining us for Brewing Faith. Join us next month when we discuss the topic of being unapologetically Catholic. We will touch on topics of faithfulness, dissent, and claiming your Catholicity. I will be interviewing Christine Eberly, author of Finding God in Ordinary Time, on her experience of working with young people in the church for over 25 years. Thank you again for joining us. Remember... The future is bright if we bring the light.